Hey guys, welcome to episode number 35 of the Rugby Strength Coach Podcast. In this episode, you're going to hear from Steve Tashjian, who is head of performance at Columbus Crew in the American MLS. Notably, Steve also served five years as the head strength and conditioning coach for Everton Football Club in the English Premier League during an extremely successful period for the club when David Moyes was in charge before he moved to Manchester United. In this episode, Steve and I talked all about organisational structure and how to run a high-performance department within elite sport. We talked about the difficulties that he faced in bringing about cultural change in a very difficult environment like Premiership football. We also discussed tactical periodization and the weekly organisation of training, and we finished up the discussion by talking about a couple of topics that, in Steve's opinion, are wrong, just dogma, and that we need to change as practitioners for the benefit of our athletes. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion, and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice on all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word TRIAL. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just £1. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it, there's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Steve, how's it going? Very good, Kira, very good. Glad to be here, man. Thank you for, uh, for doing the podcast. So for, oh, um, for, for, for people who don't know who you are, who are you and what do you do? My name is Steve Tashton. I'm the High Performance Director with Columbus Crew Soccer Club in, in Major League Soccer in the States. Did you come from a football background as an athlete? Yeah, I did, actually, as a youth athlete, and then uh, followed that, that, sit, that progression that most kids do, kind of getting into youth club uh, football and then kind of trying my hand at the uh, university level, and that's kind of where it ended for me and then got into, uh, you know, the strength and conditioning slash physical therapy side of it. So would you say you're a, a physical therapist first and foremost, or are you a strength coach that kind of dabbles in PT? Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, ooh. I would probably say that, uh, it's probably the, 
the former. I think I was definitely uh, probably molded by my physical therapy background first. And I would say, as I started to understand uh, how that changed through greater resistance and loading and, and uh, manipulating different variables like basis support and, and uh, planes of motion and so on and so forth, I think it just kind of evolved into a in, into kind of a functional physical therapist on steroids, I guess. <laughs> That's a yeah. good way to describe yeah, but it, I think it still has its roots probably in my in, in, in my physical therapy background uh, to start, I'd say. But of course, you know, they're on they're on the same continuum. Yeah, I, I really I think that's a great point to bring up is the I think that prevailing theme is starting to be a little bit more prevalent. You know, you've got a just the understanding that human movement is human movement and whether you're starting with pathology, uh, post surgery or you're just dealing with a, a healthy athlete with dysfunction, you're really trying to manipulate the same variables. Uh, and uh, what changes is whether, uh, what changes is the speed you're doing it at and the resistance that you've added to it. So it's, uh, I agree with you a hundred percent, 120%. I agree with you on that one. You, you always end up at some point, um, figuring out what your starting point is. Uh, and then you start working off success and and driving them towards uh, you know improving those areas where they where they just don't necessarily know how to communicate with the environment or respond to it in a in a powerful way you know but, yeah uh, I definitely agree with that There's, I think that gets missed sometimes and it's probably one of the top three most important things to remember as a as a performance specialist yeah I've just kind of uh, realized you're uh, a, a former exercise guy kind of hybrid PT strength coach. Darcy, yeah, correct. Darcy's the same. Exos PT strength coach hybrid. Shad Forsyth is the same. Yeah, of, yeah. Exos aside, do you think that's something that appears more in soccer than other sports? I, I'll be to be honest. Uh, you've named two others there, and there there's not many others I can name to oh, be really? fair. So, uh, even in definitely definitely in MLS. Um, I, I haven't seen it in Major League Soccer. I didn't see it abroad in the Premier League. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why more people don't um, try to to tie the two together. Um, it's given me an, an, an incredible insight into performance directing for sure. I think it, it's difficult to direct a, a you know performance program if you – haven't had, you know, real integrated experience in the individual uh, departments of a performance team. So the, it's given me an incredible insight, I think, to understanding the, the needs of each area of the platform and then, and then you know, giving it its, its proper uh, methodology and, and, uh, and direction, you know. So it, it's, it's something that it's a rarity, I think, and, and I, I, I would encourage more people that are youngsters whether they're starting in physical therapy or vice versa, to understand the importance of, uh, you know, the knowledge base of both uh, professionals and 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 and, and maybe make it a goal to to have both tools in the toolbox, so to speak, when when you finish with your schooling. I think it's an a unique but important uh, in, individual hybrid, like you say, to have have within sport. Yeah, and to echo that, I've I've had a conversation with Darcy where he said it's 
more and more he sees the trend where in, in the start of your career, you start out as a generalist and then you, you mm-hmm. specialize in something and kind of make your name for yourself. But then if you do want to get to that performance director level that you've, you've talked about, you do need to be a generalist because you have to oversee all these different roles and departments. And I'm, I'm quite confused sometimes where I see a club advertise for a head of performance role that oversees a medical department but then you've got a guy that's just an out and out strength coach running it. It's, it's, it's quite a curious situation. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's difficult to actually describe who that individual should be. I, I I don't think it, uh, I don't think it necessarily has to, you know, work its way towards one side or the other. I, I have some very, very good strength and conditioning friends who are outstanding in the rehab realm as well um and then i've got some friends who are pts slash physios and they've obviously had uh, many years to of, of experience as strength and conditioning specialists and they've done very well so i think it, it more comes down to a mentality i think it comes down to a um the the an individual's openness to to seeing different ways of of getting things done and this particular uh, title has been a little bit skewed at times because I've, I've seen the I've seen the role, uh, you know, I've seen the same title given to individuals who have much different roles. So I have friends with performance director titles that really don't have any sort of connection at all to the medical side, and um, and that always, to me, tends to be a little bit of a of a uh, of an of an issue because uh, you have to t- you have to get some sort of a uh, in my opinion you have to have some sort of an understanding of who exactly is a performance director high performance director and what are their responsibilities because it gets confusing as you're looking at the uh, you know the application pool or, or or the job vacancies that are available and it, it makes you ask the question you know what exactly am I applying for here and then as club administrators you know when you are looking for a specific individual. If you are not, uh, you know, if you're not casting a net in a way where you're actually trying to catch the right fish, are you missing out on the right candidate? Are you missing out on a guy who maybe isn't putting his name in the hat because he doesn't quite understand what the club is looking for? So I think there's a few issues with it at the minute uh, that haven't quite um, been well defined. And that, uh, sometimes it causes it causes an issue. But in the end, you're trying to find an individual, in my opinion, that um it has the has a has a depth of experience in in both realms uh, that allows them to to be able to understand the nuances of each individual you know, piece of the platform. So I think it is important for that person to to have either had both qualifications or to have extensive experience in in all those areas. Well, I mean, this is a a question that I've I've written down the list, but we've we've kind of got to the subject already. Sure. I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that as, as a field or, you know, even in professional sport, we're, we're very, very good at acute injury management and we're, we're pretty good at uh, high level performance stuff. But it's the bridge between those two areas for when, you know, when a player is injured, it's the gap between those two areas that causes us the most problems and when people yeah. get hurt. So how do you as a head of performance create your department and organize your department in a way that people don't fall in those gaps? I think you have to start by uh, establishing early 
you know, what your methodology will be. In other words, much like we spoke about earlier in terms of that continuum of rehab to return to sport, um, that entire continuum should be guided by the same functional philosophy from top to bottom. So, uh, you know, you have a lot of clubs whose medical and sports science and strength and conditioning departments are, are segregated and they attempt to, to solve that problem by moving somebody from one department to the other. Um, and, and, trying to uh, bridge those gaps without communication. I think in, in a, just with looking at it from a common sense perspective, you have to ask yourself how any of it will ever work without understanding that there's massive amounts of crossover and that the, every individual in the performance department needs to have a role in every aspect of the player's recovery. So, you know, our, our per, my personal approach is, um, you know, I try to I try to deal with it like I like I dealt with teaching my daughter how to bowl. You know, when we're at the bowling alley, we would always set these bumpers uh, in the gutters so that as the ball moved towards the gutter, if it was moving too close, it would basically bump the bumper and it would move it back into the middle of the lane. And if it moved too far to the other side, then it would bump into the bumper and move it back into the lane. Because eventually, your goal is that you want to hit the pins. That's really what we're trying to do collectively as a team. So my personal philosophy is that function is, is the bumpers in our gutter. And, you know, there's different people at times who are up, uh, you know, throwing the ball. And all I care is that, is that it hits the pins. The room in between the bumpers is the room that allows each individual practitioner to bring their own creativity to the, to the process. But as long as there's a general understanding, this is the realm in which we operate in. You know, our goals are A, B, C, and D. And those don't change as we move through E. Um, no matter what state of rehab they're in, we want their bodies to constantly be exposed to the environment. We want them to, to load and unload at whatever is the appropriate speed, base of support, or level of resistance that starts to expose them to the environment that their body will be exposed to on the, in the competitive arena. Now that's those speeds and those variables look much different three days post operative. Uh, but the, the individual goals don't change. We want to continue to move the person in a direction where we're teaching their body once again, to communicate with the environment interpret what's what's happening and then respond to it in a coordinated and powerful way that that process starts day one as soon as the athlete is allowed to put their foot on the ground and have contact with the floor and and allow their body to respond to ground reaction force and and allow their bodies to start interpret where is my center of mass as as i make contact with the ground um it where is that center of mass in terms of my own proprioceptive ability, my, my balance? Am I centered? Am I in a position to produce power? If not, how quickly can I get myself to a position to produce power? That, that, whole, that whole process uh, has its, has its own, has its, evolves in its own way as you're working yourself through the different stages of rehab. But it's not so much about writing a protocol that gives practitioners 
an idea of this is exactly what we want from from week one to week four, but instead giving them the uh, I, the, the general understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. I don't need to tell each practitioner what's appropriate or not appropriate for the for the player's level of of injury or level of ability. That's the innate ability of the practitioner to understand that. Instead, it's about making sure that we understand exactly what our what our overall goal is and what what the principles are of our methodology, and then move forward in a way where now if I go from one practitioner to another, the the, the goals are understood, and now instead it's the individual practitioner's understanding of how the level, the athlete's level has increased, how the level, how the athlete's um, abilities have improved, and now what's what's my what's the next challenge that I'm going to give to them, you know, and that's how you move yourself through one aspect to the next, and then return to play becomes, uh, you know, just a part of the process. It was walking when I started, and now it's sprinting. You know, it was it was light movement side to side when I started, and now it's more intensive change of direction. These things have their own natural progressions as long as we understand what we're trying to prepare the player for. So would you would you say that sometimes the hardest part about doing that is being able to find and hire the the right people to do that? Because I suppose if, if you if you all share the same philosophy and you're working towards the same goal, as as long as they're really, really good at what they do, you can you can effectively let them get on with it. Yeah, I mean the I don't think it's hard because there's there's good people out there. Um, I will say that it's the most important thing. It's the number one most important role of a high performance director is investing in the right people. Uh, I would say the it's it's a million times more important than investing in the right technology. People uh, people make a club work, and people make players fit. People make players feel comfortable um, and people help improve uh, player dysfunction. It's, it's, it's all in the individuals that you bring into your, uh, into your platform and the, making the right choices in that arena uh, is 90, 99% of it for me. Awesome. So I'm just writing down some notes. <laughs> um, it, it, just kind of changing subjects uh, to talk about your time at, at Everton in the Premier League. How did that move come about for you? Actually, it's kind of, uh, it, it happened quite quickly, to be honest. It was, I had actually just signed a new contract my first time around with Columbus Crew, and we had spent two preseasons back-to-back um, in England, one where we were, one where we played Everton's reserves as part of our preseason, and the second where we used Finch Farm as our home training ground for the time we were in England. And through those, through those two successive preseasons, I just got to know some of the staff there and some of the people there. And in the middle of that process, they had, uh, David Moyes had brought, uh, Exos to, to the club. He had, uh, signed a service contract with them. And, uh, somewhere in between my first and second visit to Finch farm, the, the first performance specialist had moved on. So, uh, at the time, Shad Forsyth was with the German national team, and in the interim, he was he he had become uh, kind of a stopgap for for Everton until they found a permanent replacement for the original specialist. And he he had just asked me, you know, do you think you'd be interested? And I, well, I just signed a contract, and I actually wasn't allowed to uh, to make any moves. 
anywhere until the until the end of May, uh, beginning of the summer. So it was kind of not an issue at the time. And then sure enough, as we got towards the end of uh, towards the end of May, coming on the summertime, I got I got an email from Shad and said, "Are you still interested?" So I, I hadn't really thought much about it, and all of a sudden, there it was on my plate. So I didn't expect a whole lot, to be fair, because uh, in in hindsight, on paper, I wasn't the strongest candidate. I didn't have Premier League experience; others did. Uh, but thank God that uh, David Moyes was just adamant that he wanted an American uh, fitness coaches in addition to the staff, and uh, I got the call in in June to apply and in by July I was uh, I, I met up with the team on their preseason in the US so the, it, it happened quite quickly but uh, a lot of it came down to just knowing the right people and being in the right spot at the right time and well uh, you know to, to kind of counter what you said about the strength of your candidacy I think a lot of the things that are done extremely poorly in soccer the Americans do really really well and you know, with a, a fresh set of eyes as well, you you would be ideally placed in in some regards. Uh, you know, it worked out for everybody. To be honest, I, I thought um, when the transition took place, uh, you know, I, I I got to spend a few years there with uh, with a colleague who had who had been at the club for a very long time, Dave Billows, and. Uh, this whole process for Dave was quite difficult. You had been at the club for a long time and the, the addition of Exos was not something that he was allowed to um, be a, be a part of in terms of the, de- the decision. It was made uh, kind of for him. And, and now here's another group of individuals with a, with a, you know, a different approach to things, um, you know, coming into his arena and he's now being forced to share that arena with somebody else. And, Credit to him, you know, we worked extremely well for four years together. And that was, uh, you know, that's a testament to his openness to, uh, you know, to, to looking at things with a different pair of glasses. And, and we, we ended up understanding how to work together really, really well. And, um, you know, the, that the, uh, the players themselves, I think, just were, they gravitated to a different vocabulary. Um, you know, you've been in professional sport for a while and uh, players love hearing a new voice at times. And you could even <laughs> you could even quite easily be saying the same thing that a previous practitioner had said. But because you've said it now, it's just gospel, yeah. you know, and just like to hear a different voice say it. But I think we we were an, a nice yin and yang between the two of us. Um, I had a he I learned a lot from him in the in the realm of you know, really just how to, how to determine when you just need to load guys up sometimes, you know, and I, he was very good at that. And then when you're talking about just understanding human movement and applying some different uh, creative approaches to applying resistance to it, you know, uh, we were able to, you know, to be a one, two punch type thing and how we dealt with the players. And I think they really enjoyed that. So it was, it was a win-win for everybody. And, and it allowed me to, you know, to, just experience things um, in a in a different country in a different culture, and that's always going to make you a better coach. You know? Yeah, and so it was a great experience. Touching on culture, um, mm-hmm. this is this is perhaps not every every soccer club, but the the guys that I've spoken to that have, have struggled in soccer, it's a, a consistent theme that that comes back about the the culture of soccer, which is you know how how are you going to ask 
a, a superstar athlete who gets paid millions of pounds a year to do certain things you know how, how do you get someone to, to buy in and do what you're asking them to do how do you convince a sport that is allergic to iron and sweat to actually load up and train heavy um how, how do you change coaches minds about what needs to be done yeah i think um i was about to i was about to touch on that you know you 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 have to actually address two different situations one you uh, you just brought up there at the end was you have to have a coach that believes that you're going to improve the players through uh, a certain method of strength and conditioning and then of course there's the player themselves who you know many of them come from much different backgrounds and cultures that really have never ever had strength and conditioning as a part of the of their culture so if you're going to address the first one when it comes to the players themselves one i think every single one of those players needs to feel that you have their best interest in mind as your number one priority and I'm not saying that individual coaches don't, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, situations where I believe you know individual strength coaches are also under the gun to show that you know they're actually improving the performance of the squad. So they're going to be adamant that players participate, and instead of instead of being an open discussion about how that's going to translate to a player's routine it becomes a bit dogmatic. It becomes a dictatorship and strength coaches will become confrontational at times uh, to try to convince a player or, or um, you know, maybe force a player into a type of training they're not used to and that they're uncomfortable with. So in the very beginning, there needs to be understanding by the player that I'm going to, I'm going to make you a part of this process. It's your body not mine, and our discussion is going to be one that you get to drive at times because this is you're the one that has to become vulnerable. You're the one that has to be taken to a uncomfortable place because if you're going to strength train and you're going to make improvement, then you have to you have to push a certain envelope, and uh, and that definitely means that you're going to have to get to an uncomfortable place to improve them. And so they have to buy into all this, and, and it comes with rapport. So once that happens and you've got that understanding, you know, your starting point is going to be much different with different individuals. And that's where strength coaches get uncomfortable. They're like, why am I going to start with body weight? I don't care about body weight. And their opinion is, this is doing nothing. Well, it's not, because you have to remember, if psychologically a player doesn't understand or uh, uh, feel that the the starting point and the benefits of what they're t- of what they're getting into, um, you know, are, is going to have an impact. And you're never ever gonna you're never ever gonna make anything permanent. You'll have a you'll have that characteristic individual that's with you for two or three weeks, and then they disappear, and you don't see them anymore. So that starting point has to be something that they're comfortable with, because their number one priority is they want to train, and they want to feel good when they train. So if you're going to convince somebody that it's okay to not feel good when you train and their culture has never, ever heard that before, ever, then your starting point needs to be much different. And at times, um, you know, that that particular approach has its 
every single one of those situations eat with each player. There's a point where the discussion now is, okay, this is what needs to come next. Eventually you need to load them, you know, and that's kind of, that's where you, the conversations about soreness and what you're going to feel are very, very important. And once they feel it, if they become scared of it and they say, that's it, I don't want to do this anymore. Then what you need to evaluate is one, did I load them too quickly? Or two, do I just need to have a second discussion? You know, and in that discussion, you not only need to explain what's taking place, but you also have to tell them, if you're feeling this way tomorrow, we'll continue to change it. Next week, we'll continue to change it. You have to give them a taste of what that soreness is. Let them experience it. Let them be successful after it and then start the progression. Because if you're going to take an individual who's trained a certain way for, let's say, five, six years of their professional career and been successful, and then tell them that there's another way, a better way. You're going to have to prove it to them in their time, at their pace, not at your pace. That doesn't, it won't make any sense. If in, if your expectation is that I'm going to change this person's mind in three weeks, your mistake is that you had an expectation. You can't have that expectation. Instead, you start at a point where you say, my end goal is to change this person's routine. I'm not going to put a timeline on it. And the only reason why I'm saying this now is because I was that guy. You know, I, I had the early point in my career where I was the same way. Like, I, I, my personal opinion on, on what was most important for the player was it was a no-brainer. First and foremost, what I'm doing is the most important thing you'll ever do. And it was <laughs> so absurd to feel that way. Uh, but, that you know, young strength coaches, at least my, myself, I, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to improve players. I wanted them to understand that I could, I could help them. And sometimes we get frustrated because they don't understand it or they don't want it. And we take it as a personal insult. It's not, you know, oh, we have to take a step back and understand it's not my body. It's theirs. And in the end, if they make the personal choice that they don't want to do strength training ever, I don't think you necessarily give up on that individual, but you got to give them some space, you know, and, and there's been times when my strategy is, listen, I'm here if you need me. And when they come back is when they're injured. And they're hurt and you were able to help them come back from injury. And then you say, listen, you know, what do you think about continuing this in a way that helps you maintain your, your physical fitness? And, and that's worked before. Yeah. Um, you know, there's different ways to attack each player. And sometimes you have to let them hit rock bottom before they give you an opportunity to, to influence them again. And that's important. You know, that's important. But, you know, underpinning all is, is the second part of it, which is, you know, what type of what type of head coach and what's their philosophy on where this fits into the program. I've, I've been with, I've been lucky enough to be with managers who are, are very open to this area and allow me to allow me to do my thing. You know, I've never really had many problems in that, in that arena, but I've had individual colleagues with that have had issues with it. Um, you know, philosophically between, between themselves and a head coach. And it, it is an issue. And, you know, overall, I think, more often than not, what I would say in those particular situations is you're not the one with your neck on the line. Uh, let's be, let's be fair. I mean, if team does well or team does poorly, you know, the head coach either accepts the praise or he, or he's the one that takes it in the neck. So, you know, we, you have to approach those situations very, very carefully. If a head coach doesn't feel like you're on his side, then it's going to be very difficult for you to ever get anything done. 
And if he doesn't think that you understand the repercussions of poor performance, um, then he's never going to trust you. And I think that's that's the starting point is what I understand is that your job depends on wins and losses and your willingness to take a risk uh, is only going to go so far based on your personality. And that needs to be something that's understood by strength coaches. We They don't need to adjust to us here. You know, that's not the way this particular, you know, paradigm works. Yeah. We're, we're never the, we're never the, the, the bus driver in that situation. You know, we're on their bus. And at the end of the day, we need to adjust to them. That's the way it needs to work. Now, there's other sports where the strength and conditioning coach is the right-hand man of the head coach. Well, that's not necessarily our situation in football. So mm. we have to understand that the, the culture and the way this sport works means that we're just have to gonna, we're gonna have to be more effective in our communication skills and the way we handle interpersonal relationships. Um, and, and that's where defining your role and your starting point and how you're developing your program um, uh, is you know that the definition of that, the starting point is going to be defined by the, the characteristic of your head coach. So those are th- those are difficult circumstances to come to. Um, I've never had that situation with a head coach in terms of how things are done in the gym, but I've had them and how things things should be handled on the field. And and that particular process was a tough one for me. And again, I came into the situation this in particular, especially at Everton, where you know I I was I was determined to make an impact, but I was a little bit overzealous. I think the 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 more appropriate approach would have been to understand David Moyes has a, a certain way of training his team. He's been effective for a very, very long time. And he's, he's uh, you know, he's managed to be a top football manager for a very, very long time. So at that point, I think my, my eagerness to help in the beginning ended up looking like um, a, a more, ended up looking more like distrust. Yeah. But I didn't think he knew how to do it, that I thought I had a better way that my way was better. And that's not, that wasn't the way to approach it at all. Not just because it was David Moyes, but based on any head coach, that wouldn't have been the way to handle it. So overall, it's a, it it was a, it's a maturation process for everybody. And the one thing that was most difficult for me to learn was that, you know what, if I let go, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the, the squad isn't going to crumble underneath our feet because I didn't get my way. And, uh, you know, it took, it, took a, it took a while for me to understand that. It took longer in some arenas than others. But overall, the, you know, the idea is that you're coming into work in as a part of a coaching staff, as a team. Yeah. And, and there's, only one, there's only one head of that team. And, and frustratingly, there's... Uh sometimes quite a lack of relationship between the, the quality of your work and, and how the boys perform on the field, unfortunately. Sure. <laughs> sure. No, and I would, I'd, at times, um, you know, you just have to maybe quietly admire the fruits of your labor and, and resign to the fact that you might never get an attaboy from your head coach ever. Yeah. Ever. Uh, that's just the way some individuals are. Yeah. You know, I had a, Incredible working relationship with Ziggy Schmidt my first time around in Columbus, and we won a you know we won an MLS championship uh, at the end of 2008 together, 
and I think it was 18 months to 20 months before I, before I ever heard him say, uh, you know, uh, I want you to know that I appreciate what you do. <laughs> Good job, Steve. <laughs> 20 months into it, you know. Yeah. So the gym, see Jim, and decided to give me a compliment. <laughs> But uh, he's he's fantastic. He's obviously a very good uh, manager. That's you know that's been successful and, and one of the better uh, U.S. coaches that's that's ever been. So, but that's just the nature of it, and it's different personalities. Different yeah. personalities have their way of handling things, and it's 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 tough for strength coaches. It's tough for physical therapists. It's it's tough for any performance specialist. Um, yeah. It's a it's quite a thankless job at times. So you you talked about. You know, gym, no problem. Field, problems, because, you know, that's considered the the technical or sport coach's domain. But in in a, a demanding professional sport where the, the coach will fight for every single minute of, of on-feet time being dedicated towards technical and tactical practice, you have to, as a strength coach, try and work with that head coach to make sure that the team achieves its goals in terms of those areas, but at the same time, you're getting the greatest possible gain physically out of what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I suppose people have called it tactical periodization or so on, and, and people have different ideas about, uh, is it valid? Does it work? How do you go about it? What is your kind of blueprint for approaching that area with a coach to make sure that you get out of practice what you want? Yeah, I think it just, it depends on the coach for sure. The, um the communication with David Moyes early on was more we felt that he was training them too hard. So it wasn't, it wasn't about the uh, trying to, to put our stamp on training and, and implement different energy system development uh, exercises and sacrificing technical time to do them. That wasn't the case. You know, we, we knew these training sessions were difficult uh, and the manager enjoyed the manager enjoyed, um, you know, physical development through technical exercises. He also enjoyed pure running based, um, you know, energy system development. It, it wasn't an issue there. It was more, uh, much more about understanding how to, how to prescribe the right amount of recovery to, to me, to, to have super compensation happening weekly. And that was more probably the, you know, the, the source of communication uh, early on and it you know it took time for us all to gel as a group we were we were performing well and we were winning games but it was because uh you know there was a very clear point where we knew uh the gaffer was being adamant and we're not going to win this conversation and we would respectfully uh you know obviously uh we would we would pull back and 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 not push as hard because we knew this is not going to go anywhere and it's important to him to handle it a certain way but then with other coaches it, it's much different you know there was um with my my experience now with Greg Berhalter, now that I'm back in Columbus again, um, the integration is seamless. You know, when you talk about does tactical periodization work within this model that we have now, um, we really do. At this point, we're we're kind of finishing each other's sentences at this point. You know, that, and that's that's been something really really nice to have in my career. Where I'm at now is to have a real good understanding, not just my understanding of our style of play and what's technically needed, but, uh, you know, Greg's understanding of, of how I want to develop them, uh, you know, develop them energy system wise and 
we've got a very, very clear way that we handle our periodization. It's different. Um, it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, a conventional form of periodization. That's, uh, where we're trying to fit in every energy system into every week. Um, that's not our particular philosophy. We, we have a, a more impulse driven, a physical impulse driven periodization where we have a, a theme that we want to accomplish well. And if our particular theme, uh, one week is speed, speed, endurance, then Greg does a fantastic job on our, our heavier days of understanding that, okay, well, let's try to have transitional games in this particular training session. Let's try to have uh, activities that require high-intensity work with recovery in between so that we're eliciting the type of changes we want in the athlete physically but still accomplishing everything we want tactically. Um, we have the understanding. We do speed games. We, we can do them with the ball. We can do them without the ball. Uh, we can we can incorporate these different methods within the type of technical needs we have in preparation for our opponent. The, it, does it take time? Does it take communication? A hundred percent. You know, we're we're, uh, you know, we're two years, two and a half years into this process now as a group, and we obviously have a nice understanding of how we do it now, but. It was trial and error as we started, and the whole thing started as, "Hey, I got an idea," mm. uh, and I've, I'm working with a, you know, with a manager now that basically, uh, if he, if he feels, if he, if he sees in me confidence that the the method will work, uh, he'll ask his questions, and and it doesn't take much for him to be comfortable, and we can move on with it, and everybody's bought in and moving in the same direction. I've had some coaches where. They'll ask who else is doing it, and if I say no one, they'll, they'll say then we're not doing it either. <laughs> but with with Greg, if I say you know if he asks who else is doing it, and I say no one, he says perfect. You know that's a a much different perspective on how to handle things, and he's he's he puts a lot of trust in me, and and I and I don't I never take that for granted. So at this point, our periodization model is much different, um, and we instead try to use the the natural periodization that takes place from placing the type, the particular type of training in the right order. So if I have a four week block of work and my, my preference in the first week is to be speed, speed, endurance, that's going to require a bigger field. It's going to require longer distances. It's going to require a certain type of work and a certain chain, mostly posterior chain that's going to, to be influenced by it and, and overworked. Well, the following week, if I follow it by, by having a more of an intensive training impulse, then I know the field sizes are going to be smaller. We're going to bring things in a little bit tighter. We know there's going to be more accelerations and decelerations oriented with that type of work, but I'm going to protect the posterior chain. I'm in a decelerated position more often than not. I'm really going to load decelerators and pelvic stabilizers and things of that nature, but not terminal speed muscles. I'm not going to be influencing them as heavily. Yep. And then... I'm going to follow that with now, you know, driving things more extensively. I can open the field back up again because my, my, uh, you know, my priority the week previous was a smaller pitch. So if I open up the pitch now, a little bit bigger pitch, and now I've got longer duration games, I've got more numbers in terms of players on the field. <clears throat> well, now I'm actually working on more cardiovascular work. The speeds are naturally going to slow down because the duration of the games are too long. The durations of the games are longer and because of the cardiovascular load and the overall fatigue, I, I won't be able to produce speed as often. 
And so I'm naturally protecting the players, even though my foot's on the gas every week. And in the fourth week of the block, you know, you can offload. Now you download the whole process. Are and you using you, um, uh, GPS and heart rate to kind of uh, keep keep yourselves in check when doing this kind of work to say, oh, you know, we, we are hitting the kind of stuff that we think we're hitting? Yeah, yeah. I, in this day and age of, uh, of performance monitoring, um, I, I don't think you can really function without it anymore. Well, we... So we've... We, We've obviously become quite familiar and dependent on the data that we collect. We have desired loads, and then we compare them to the actual loads, and, and we move forward from there. And it's been a process that we've been able to develop quite quickly and then refine and perfect over the last two and a half years. And we've, we've, we've got a system that worked. You know, the very first year we implemented it, we went all the way to the MLS Cup final. And the... Uh, we were able to keep players fit. We had a healthy squad, and um, we did a great job in in producing robust players that could tolerate, you know, uh, 365 days of of high intensity activity. So it was we were very very pleased with it. Yeah. The second year, uh, you know, we, pr- we got a few things wrong and weren't able to produce the same success from a physical standpoint or or you know results standpoint either, but. Uh, physically, we got a few things wrong in the direction we went in and didn't rectify it next year. And but data allows you to do that. You know, data allows you to look at what you did and and understand that uh, where your mistakes were. Uh, and that's a really really important piece to to having data available to you. But we have that model in place because uh, our monitoring uh, method in place because we know that we're we're again we're pushing players to a certain limit. That's our job. Our job is to go right up to the line, as close as we can get to it every week. And if we do that right and we do it well, uh, you know, you're going to win a lot of games. And we've uh, we've now had the experience of a year where we did it well and a, and a year where we didn't do it as well. So we'll, we'll move forward next year expecting to do it well again. Awesome. So you, you mentioned 365 days a year, and uh, soccer is notorious for having – effectively a non-existent off-season or a non-existent pre-season. So the guys are either playing games or they're resting. So how do you how do you strike that balance between it's, wanting to give yeah. them enough rest and getting them ready and not pushing them too hard and so on? How, how, do, how do you do that? It's a little bit easier in MLS. Uh, the league is set up a bit differently because depending on how far you go in the playoffs, uh, you'll have much a much different length of off season. So those things change from one year to the next. Uh, and it does allow you to, um, to have a little bit, a little bit more, a little, a, a greater, a greater control over that particular aspect of it. You know, for instance, for us this year, not making the playoffs gave us a, an extended period of time to, to really do whatever we wanted with, uh, it created opportunities for rest. It's created opportunities for, um, you know, times of, of intensive loading, uh, as well as, you know, the, a, real, a period where we can now sharpen and fine tune and make sure the players are ready for the, for the volume of preseason. So uh, we don't necessarily have that same problem here. Now, at Everton, it was much different. You know, um, the, the approach I always took was I felt like you don't have the luxury of ever 
stopping your weight training program. Yeah. Um, that, um, from me, that was supported by the players and by the, by the coaching staff. Um, you know, whether a player was what committed himself as intently as I would have liked is obviously a different story, but I made sure that my communication to the players and the resources I made available to them were comprehensive uh, and they were very detailed. So if you're going to allow players to rest, it doesn't mean that their activity stops completely. Uh, I think that's a massive mistake that can be made by coaches and can also be made by players who um, kind of make that decision on their own, uh, regardless of of the advice they've been given or the program that they've been handed. Sometimes players just make the decision, oh my goodness, I'm so tired. And oh my, I just need this rest. And it, and it is a mistake if you, if you do handle yourself in that regard, um, because a sedentary, a sudden sedentary period uh, will shock the body uh, in a pretty intense way. So we feel strongly that uh, there should be very little rest from the weight room. Um, you can decrease the volume, that's for sure, but you, uh, we don't feel like you can ever stop putting the body against resistance. I, I don't think it works well in terms of, of maintaining um, you know, the tolerance to the, to the sport itself. And that's something we drove into, the, into our guys this year. Uh, it was a, it's going to be a long break. Yeah. We are now, we're now four weeks into our break. But they've been lifting for three weeks now. You know, we two times a week as we started, and we said, you know, you just have to maintain a certain amount of resistance weekly. But we we told them, you know, just maintain and have have a nice, enjoyable recreational time off. Um, you know, it's important to keep your body moving, to detach yourself from the sport, and let your mind rest, let your body heal, um, and and have some time to reflect on how you want to approach the following season. But you know, you got to get these guys involved in what they're passionate about. I tell guys, if you love fishing, go fish. If you're an artist, then, you know, submerge yourself in your art. You know, get yourselves to the point where you are, uh, you know, fully passionate about something that's not soccer um, while while then maintaining just the just this talk, the, the appropriate amount of physical load to uh, to keep your body engaged. Um, and I think those are really, really important things. And as they move into now this next period, we've got two really intensive three-week periods that uh, that we put the players through in their off-season programs. We run a voluntary camp here, and that voluntary camp uh, allows the players to have our supervision if they want it to. Um, and if they don't, then their entire program is on an application that we use on their mobile devices and they have the opportunity to, you know, participate. But those, those two blocks of three weeks are, are intensive. They're very, very uh, difficult, pro progressive loads, but it does get quite difficult. Whereas at Everton, I couldn't do that. You know, Everton, the period, the break was five weeks and that was it. Um, I made sure that they had a steady strength training program for four of those five weeks. And then I just got them moving for two weeks before they came back. You know, and, and we understood when we got them back in preseason where they would be, and then we just started this fitness progression. But, you know, they had to run. They have to keep running in, in their during their break. Um, at this point, uh, not just in MLS, but in global football, physical fitness is a, is a massive, a massive predictor of, of overall success. You know, you 
you have to be able to impose your your will on the opponent through your style of play at the you know at the highest possible peak of performance you know at the highest level of physical intensity as possible you know and that's difficult to maintain uh if you don't stay consistent with moving your body yeah i've 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 kind of heard similar with uh with rugby i have a friend who works mm. in international rugby sevens and he yeah. said uh, over a few years in the job now he's come to realize that one of the worst things he can do is give his guys a week off because mm. you may gain psychologically in giving the boys a break and they enjoy it and so on but physically you you create so many problems for yourself when they come back because a lot of coaches just want to come back and say oh you know we'll, we'll continue as as is but yeah. when when you're at that higher level you have to maintain that kind of fitness day to day so his his preference now is to give them maybe a long weekend or a, a four-day weekend and and try not to lose as much because just dropping off a cliff and then coming back and trying to train as you did before you you you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot i think Right. Yeah. You know, to be fair, I, I've had that situation. I've had success and failure with it. Um, and I think my personal opinion is I'm, I'm now convinced it comes down to the mentality of the players. Yeah. Um, you know, this, the particular group that we had this year, there was a period where we were able to give them, I think it was, I think it was five, might've been six days, five or six days off, uh, in the middle of the year. And when we came back, um, it was, it was just short of a catastrophe in my opinion. I don't think we, we didn't gain what we wanted at all. Um, tactically it was poor physically. It was poor. Um, and the, the decision in that particular regard was the, the wrong decision on our part. But then I remember distinctly in the middle of 2008, my first time around with the club, we had a period where we gave the players a week off and cure. When we came back, I couldn't believe it our tempo, our pace, the intensity. It was unbelievable. It was fantastic. Yeah. And and it's we didn't miss a beat. But then I thought about the group. You know, we had we had a different mentality of players. We had a wider range of age on that team. We had some younger players, but we had a, some seasoned folks on that team. And then we had a lot of the guys in the middle, the twenty fives to twenty eights. And that was uh, there. I think it comes down to knowing your players really well, knowing the team really well, and the overall, um, you know, sometimes maybe protecting the players from their own opinions. Sometimes, you know, at times players you know feel a certain way, and oh my god, we just need this break, and we're just we're dying. We just need this week off, and then but you're not. It's not. I'm not saying you're not going to listen to them. You have to listen to them. Always listen to your players, but then. You know, in this particular regard, it always comes down to that we're the specialists in the area of work and recovery, and it's going to be eventually. You know, our our input is going to be substantial and this significant in this area. So we can't always give the players what they want in these regards. Sometimes we have to protect them from themselves, and uh, it, it, it's a it's a real tough decision to make at times because. I would say that rest is always good, but the length of it is difficult to predict, yeah. especially when you have the opportunity to take a big chunk off. You know, how do you necessarily make that decision correctly? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what kind of triggered this podcast was you and I having a conversation on Twitter and you remarked to me <laughs> that, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that we do wrong as a field. What, what are the big areas that you think that we, we need to change? 
I would say that the the what we're doing wrong is that we're I think we've grown really, really comfortable in a groupthink environment where we're okay with doing something because that's what everybody else does. Uh, trust me, I'm guilty of it. I, I think the most disappointing part of this realization is that uh, I was able to look back on my own career and see how how much of a part of this I was in perpetuating certain areas of our of our industry that need to evolve. Um, you know, strength and conditioning is, is, um, in it has not reached its potential by a long shot. <clears throat> and I think the, the, the reason why I realized this, because as I had time, um, away from, from sport, I, I was able to visit a lot of clubs, rugby clubs, American football clubs, soccer clubs, European football clubs. Um, and I, I got a good taste of what they do in the gym, how they handle their programs. And every single one of them said the same thing. Ah, we're different. We're different. And this is why. And it wasn't my place to say it, but I left thinking, nah, mate, you're not. You're not different. <laughs> you know, you're really not. Uh, and it's, you know, you're not functional because you're standing on one leg. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're not, you're not progressive because you throw a medicine ball. You know, what, what we're lacking in my opinion across the board, um, you know, there's obviously in silos, some fantastic practitioners. Um, and the, and then the outside of that, there's those practitioners who have the potential um, to really produce incredible results. And sometimes they just have to be exposed to the right, uh, you know, to the right stimulus. And all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and they're off and running. But you know, what we do right now, I think is that we prescribe exercises because, you know, we, oh man, that I've been told or I've read or I've seen that, man, that's a good exercise. I need to build single leg strength. So, let's let's be doing some bulgarian squats um you know i, I want to be able to be powerful and, and jump and and have have good explosive power so you know let's do plyometrics but what we're not engaging enough is the the interaction of the body with the environment what's the precursor to the actual athletic movement and the example i always give is if i need single leg strength you know, the question is, okay, it's probably because proprioceptively I don't look great decelerating, right? I mean, why do we why do we work on single leg strength in sport? It's for two reasons, in my opinion. To make sure that we're safe when we decelerate and make sure we're power, powerful when we need to be explosive, right? And, yep. and, and, and re-accelerate. So if you're going to just look at the deceleration part of it, if I'm unstable and I'm not decelerating well, Merely putting myself in a position to do a single leg squat doesn't necessarily address why I don't decelerate well. If I'm in a position where in single leg, I don't load through the, through the chain properly. You know, it could be I've had numerous ankle injuries and now my subtalar joint is so rock frozen that I can't unlock the system. My subtalar joint doesn't evert. When my foot hits the ground, I don't load properly. 
Well, if that's not taking place at the foot, then I'm not getting the appropriate internal rotation of the tibia. The femur is not following it. I'm not loading the glute well. And the overall problem is that I'm losing the quality of my communication from the foot to the rest of my proprioceptive system. system. I'm not communicating well enough with my central nervous system at that point. Because the, the more malleable my foot is, the better it communicates with the ground, then the more motion I'm going to get through the whole entire process. And that motion is what communicates with the body. That motion is what lengthens muscles and stimulates proprioceptors and starts to engage the central nervous system in a way where it identifies where my body is in space. Now, all of a sudden, the Bulgarian squat doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless we've looked at things from a, a much deeper perspective. We're smart enough to do this here. It takes time and we have to create systems and processes to evaluate players more in a, in a more detailed way. But this is an industry of very, very intelligent people. And I think it's just the, the nature of challenging things. I was I was lucky enough, gracious enough uh, not to, to be exposed uh, to Gary Gray at a very, very early point in my career. And I was in a facility where I had the freedom um, to to treat a certain way. I wasn't obligated to, you know, to, to look at, to come into a, uh, the facility and, and, and be textbook about the way I did things. I didn't need to be locked into the way the academic books tell you you need to treat patients. It was much more open. It was much more based on, you know, true functional human movement. And Gary is the father of it. And that was the catalyst for me, understanding these things from a much more from a much deeper perspective and deeper understanding of function was important. And he gave that to me and the individuals I was working with at the time fostered it, facilitated it. And that's why I'm at where I'm at now. And as we kind of just, just started to implement what our philosophy was going to be at the club, it was very important for me that function be a, a, a pivotal starting point, you know, a cornerstone in, in how we did things. But that process takes time to, to permeate through an entire staff. Uh, and we, you know, through regular, some, you know, CPD that we did ourselves, um, whether it be self-taught, whether it be uh, led by me, whether it be led by one of the staff members, whether it be through uh, taking different courses and seminars, we have slowly moved our way into becoming more and more detailed, more and more um, uh, capable of understanding human movement at a deeper level. And that's what we don't do as strength and conditioning coaches. Um, you know, instead, if we need to be strong, let's be fair. You could probably go to a book of 25 exercises, and that's the majority of what gets prescribed in a lot of lot of weight rooms. And it doesn't necessarily expand further beyond that too much. Um, and a lot of it is is very kind of packaged. You know, what I mean, we've got this prehab mentality where prehab has to look a certain way. Um, I, I've, I've said this a million times. If, if you don't make up an exercise every day, you're doing something wrong. That <laughs> I, I really feel strongly about that. Each individual has a certain dysfunction that needs to be addressed a certain way. Are there similarities between players? Of course there are. Of course. But, you know, you've we've got creative minds in these positions at different clubs, and I don't think we're necessarily uh, challenging ourselves enough. I, I think that's one, one part of it. You know, I, I just read, finished reading... Franz Bosch's book a second time, Strength and Coordination. And uh, 
the one thing I get from it is it was a it was a fantastic application of of a cere- of a cerebral process to strength and conditioning. I think we need to become more cerebral as strength and conditioning coaches and challenge ourselves more. Uh, I think that's a that's an area that we can do much much better in. And I think diet and nutrition. I think we've we've fallen into a trap with diet and nutrition for a very very long time. And it's driven by the food industry's cure. You know we don't we don't do what we do because of good sound research necessarily. Yeah. You know we if you go to anybody in this industry and you say what fuels your sport, they're going to say carbohydrates hands down. Yeah. But if you truly ask them why, tell me how that works. Biochemically, it's got flaws, yeah. massive flaws. Aerobic capacity underpins the success of our sport. We we know we've known for centuries, for decades, that carbohydrates don't produce the greatest aerobic capacity in, in human beings. And ideally, you want that that system to be as fat adapted as possible. One hundred percent. Name me one soccer team in the world that's fat adapted. Mm. It, it's they're not fat adapted. There's only one that I know of, and that's us. And the reason, and the reason why is because it's it's a massive risk. I yeah. mean, you're basically you basically have to take large a large portion of somewhere in your season. We prefer preseason, and you've you've got to get players fat adapted. Now, I I truly believe that the the true answer in our sport is to periodize carbohydrate intake. I do. It has a role. It has so, a role. In, it has a role in being successful, like a, a train low, compete high kind of thing. Uh, not necessarily. Um, yet in a, in a simplistic form, yes. Uh, you have to make sure that if the players are fat adapted, that they stay fat adapted. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a part of a regimen of the of, of of their weekly diet. But when you start looking at when you prescribe carbohydrates and you know when you do them and how much, I mean. Our, our values are so far off. 400 grams of carbohydrates a day is insane, in my opinion. It, it doesn't make any sense. We're driving players into diabetes. I've, I'm, I've seen it in blood work. I, I'm understanding it more and more now as we, as we look at it. And there's lots of people who are starting to talk about carbohydrate periodization. But what they're not admitting is that the, the mere... The, the mere mention of carbohydrate periodization implies that you're fat adapted. How are you going to periodize carbohydrates? Why would it matter if you weren't fat adapted? It wouldn't make a difference. Uh-huh. So, you know, the, the, the under, we're not looking at it with a fresh set of eyes. Instead, we're paying attention to research that was paid for by Gatorade or Lucasade or the food industry. Yeah. And then, and, and it's, it's, it was, driven by groupthink for years. I was a part of it, Kira. I'm not excluding myself from this. This is a very recent change of, of events for me. But under, you know, but it didn't make sense. There was a point where it just didn't make sense. And at some point, if something doesn't make sense, stop banging your head against the same rock. You know, move the rock. There might be something underneath it. And that's, that's kind of what it came to for me was, let's really truly understand this for a minute. How, how on earth is any of this making sense, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's lots of areas of performance that need evolution. Um, and all, all, I, all I look at is, listen, I could be dead wrong here. I could. 
I'm not saying that I'm, um, this is the direction that it all needs to go in. But I will, what I will say is that, uh, I'm, I'm willing to take the calculated risks to learn more about the human body and getting it and getting it to push the limits of performance. I mean, you have to be willing at some point to do something different. What we work in is a sport where marginal differences make the total difference. 5% is massive. If my team is 5% physically better than the team we're playing against, that has an impact. But you gain that 5% by all the marginal changes adding up over time. The marginal difference, the marginal gains you get from diving into being as functional as possible in the gym. The marginal differences and changes you get from, from being different in your diet and nutrition program. The marginal differences you get from being creative in the way you individualize your recovery strategies. All these things are going to add up. And if they all add up to 6%, you're laughing. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you're, you have such a huge advantage that, um, the, the only, uh, you know, the only step, the only step from there is to just keep digging and keep diving deeper and deeper. So it's, it's not a, it's not a process where you blindly dive into a, a, you know, a dark world that hasn't been looked at, but you have to take calculated risks based on good, sound, fundamental, basic science. You know, that's where this started. Yeah. We've understood, we've understood the, the aerobic abilities of fat for a long, long time here, long time. And the, but it's been completely ignored. Why? Because somebody told us you can't produce power without carbohydrates. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I tell my guys, and, you know, I, I stole this from a friend of mine. His name's uh, Tom Farrow, who works with England Sevens. He said, everything you put in your program, ask yourself, why are we doing this five times? And if you're still answering questions at the end of it, you can put it in the program. Right. And I, that's what I say to my guys. I say, we can do anything in the program. If, if you give me a suggestion, it will go in the program. If you can, if you can tell me why, exactly why it's going in. And if you can't, then we need to evaluate as a staff or as a team, why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing yeah. it because we know it's the best thing to do or because someone told us that's what we should do or that's what we've always done? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I think the other side of that is you know, taking a good look at your trends, um, injury trends, performance trends, positive and negative. One question we asked our staff at the end of this year was – do we think we've got a really, really good strength and conditioning program? And we all said yes. My answer is yes. And my next response was, well, then how come we've had five sports hernia surgeries in the last two and a half years? I'll, you know, from my perspective, call it luck, but I had a seven-year run across two clubs, across two different continents, and we didn't have a single sports hernia surgery. Yeah. So I don't say we can, we can say it was luck. Or we can say that a deeper look into function is going to give us some success. Now, we could go deep into function and we still might not solve this particular trend that we've seen. But if we sat on that data and did nothing, that would be even more criminal. So, again, it's not only the questions you ask about individual exercises, but it's questions you ask about trends that you're seeing within your team, positive and negative, And looking at the positive ones and saying, how can we maintain that? Looking at the negative ones and saying, how can we get rid of it? So... You know, it's it's a it's definitely a um, it's a stimulus and response industry. Uh, you know, one thing happens and there's a response to it. 
there's a there's a an, a moment of there's a, either a season or a, a a month or a week or a day of of input on the club on the team on the individual and every input has an output and the response itself is going to tell you whether or not you your uh, the the strategies you've chosen are successful or not you know I believe that in in not only you know holistically in terms of your total approach to strength and conditioning but individually I mean that particular metaphor is is present in the way we breathe we breathe in there's a moment of stillness and we breathe out and it's the same exact process when it comes to strength and conditioning you know there's a need there's a moment of silence while we implement and then there's a response positive or negative you know if we continue to maintain that type of organic holistic approach to strength and conditioning we'll be fine but the problem is is you know we're breathing in and and but we're ignoring any sort of the responses we just keep we keep breathing the same breath you know what i mean yeah yeah that's awesome steve um where can people find you online uh easiest easiest spots would probably be uh twitter i'm at, at steve tashton on twitter and then i'm on linkedin i'm easy to find on on either of those two uh and and i'm i, I like engaging in conversations like this as often as possible you know the we just need to keep we just need to keep challenging ourselves as an industry if we want to continue to prove our worth if we want to continue to um, you know put our money where our mouth is then you know we've we've got to we've got to make sure that we're not resting on our laurels and that's a that's a big I think it's a opportunity that you provide for a lot of people with this platform so you know I'm appreciative of the conversations we've had on Twitter uh, I'm appreciative of the opportunity you give you know individuals to come and 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 express themselves uh, in this way. And there's a lot of, lot of uh, podcasts popping up now, and I think they're really, really important. So I appreciate the the platform that you've provided here. Uh, well, thank you. You know, I'd I'd uh, I'd do this even if no one listened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bravo, bravo. Uh, I don't think anyone is listening, but anyway, <laughs> thank you no very problem. much, Steve. No problem. I appreciate it, Kira. Thanks again, man. Cheers.